Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Islander Thomas Pruxma. Hello, Thomas, and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. And let's see here. So, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Ashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH, and available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thanks to all my listeners for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. So, is it Body Earth? Body and Earth. Body and Earth. And is very small. The end is <laughs> okay, small, lurking over there on the right side of the it page. It is. Okay, so um, to describe this a little bit to folks, it's sort of about a 6-inch um, by 7-inch or 8 by 9-inch book, Body and Earth. And so I love this. We're going to get into the names in a second. But when you flip through, you can immediately tell that we're looking at a blend of art forms. So there is photography in here. There is drawings in here. And there are, of course, all of the written pieces. And so it's, it's about, well, 110 pages. And the two people, there's yourself, of mm -hmm. course, and you did, is it true, basically you mostly did the writing? Um, yes and no, and I'll get into that a little more Perfect. Okay, soon. Good. And then we have CF John, which now here in the U.S., everyone would assume C and F stand for something and that John's the last name. But it turns out that your friend's name is John, and CF has to do with how people in India name themselves. So why don't you describe that real quickly? Well, in South India, um, uh, which is the part of the country that I can speak with some authority about, um, people uh, will be known by one name, and that will be their, their, their name. Um, there's not even an idea of a first name and a last name. What there is instead is um, a series of uh, a system of adding initials to a person's name, and the initial will simply be that person's the initial of that person's father. Okay. Uh, so there might be one initial. There might be two initials, and and that could sometimes mean uh, the place that their father was from. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that would mean a particular lineage. Or clan, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but the initials always stand for that kind of information rather than a first or a last name. So CF John is simply John. Mm -hmm. um, I think, if I remember correctly, the F stands for Francis, mm -hmm. um, and I don't even remember what what uh, the C stands for because it's it's just in additional information about the man named John. So it's just really not considered that important in that culture. It's con it's important as far as bureaucracy and right. record keeping um but the name is is what's most important well that was honestly the ironically the first thought that came to mind was wow that's got to be a bureaucratic nightmare when you've got a whole bunch of johns running around and they've got initials there's got to be a bunch of c johns out there you know so i my first thought was wow you know how do you what do they call it when you do a census or something like mm -hmm. that if everyone's got similar names but that brings me to sort of the almost the core piece of the idea that was behind this book, which is there I went off in a nice American deductive perspective and thought, oh, and that's sort of what you're trying to address, and I'll let you dive into this, is is how can, um, well, we're going to have to come at it a little bit different, but the difference between deductive approaches and analytical approaches to understanding the world and a broader, more holistic way. Mm -hmm. So, so folks, uh, let's see. How can we do this? Because there's a lot of backstory to this book, and I want to make sure it all makes sense. So let's do this a little bit linear, and we'll start off sort of with, um, first, you were a college student, and you were interested in philosophy. And tell us a little bit about what got you going in this direction. Well, um Probably the most direct way into the, this question is to describe the first time I met John. Right. I was uh, a junior in college as part of a, a year-long abroad program, uh, which was interested in issues of ecology and culture. And we traveled around the world and spent uh, time in five different countries, including 10 weeks in India. And India, for reasons that I'm not even sure I understand, uh, has fascinated me ever since I was a child. So I was particularly eager 
to be in 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 the country. Mm-hmm. And we were visiting uh, the city of Bangalore in in the south of the country, uh, and we'd been quite uh, involved in discussions with intellectuals, with activists, um, with ordinary people about uh, the various ecological conundrums facing uh, the country and the subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this was quite heady stuff. We were you know, thinking through a lot of things. And mm-hmm. then we had this day-long workshop with uh, C.F. John. And he said, I think you've been doing a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. And you've probably, probably been doing a lot of thinking with your heads. What I'd mm-hmm. like us to do is uh, play with our hands, get our hands in the material of the earth. And he had the whole uh, big uh, lump of clay Mm-hmm. And he had us make things with clay. And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. It's kind of like what I might have done in elementary school. Um, uh, but I was also intrigued. And it has remained in my memory much more vividly than any number of lectures that I might have heard before or after right. as part of that program. Um, a couple of years later, uh, when I was in India for the first extended period of time, two and a half years mm-hmm. in the city, in and around the city of Madurai, uh, I happened to meet up with him again, and we started to have some very nice conversations, so much so that when I was back again a number of years later, to keep jumping through time, yeah, uh, I was back for a year in 2000, from 2003 to 2004, mm-hmm. and I was doing research under a Fulbright grant. I was exploring metaphors of language, uh, metaphors uh, that connect to land in the Tamil language and in selected works of Tamil literature. And I went up to see, by now, my friend, mm-hmm. John, in Bangalore. And, and as we were talking about this, he said that he's been working on, and he showed me some paintings that he was working on, um, a series of paintings called Landscape Parables. And he was at that time, and I think throughout his entire career, has been very interested in um, material existence the substance of our our actual earthly existence. So, for example, in some of his paintings, you'll find dried leaves that are actually in the painting, mm. held to the canvas by the paint. Right. Um, you'll find footprints in in the paint on the canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he's done a number of works which are not at all traditional artworks, but are rather art events. Um, you mentioned the photography in, mm-hmm. in Body yeah. and Earth. Some of those photographs are photographs of events or art events which would combine um, imagery, uh, dance and choreography, song. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, is that Sufi? Uh, is this, that- is, uh, this is actually just a dance at the bottom of a dried, uh, a well that has gone dry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's at the bottom. In, in South India, we have these large circular wells that are open to the sky. Right. We're about... Um, in this picture, we're at the bottom, about 70 feet, 60 to 70 feet into the ground. And Does it normally fill up during the monsoon? This one has gone dry because the water table in and around the city of Bangalore has gone down. And so part of the intent of this particular um, art event was to draw attention to that ecological plight, as right. well as to the memory of these wells. What did these wells mean to the villagers who live and used to live around them? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so that was part of a dance. You'll notice there's a spiral in the leaves that have fallen to the bottom of the well. And then there was a, a sort of a circular dance in the middle. Um, right. So he's so he and you met numerous times. We met a number of times. And he proposed to me, why don't we write a book? Mm-hmm. Let's write a book about how the body and the earth connect, how body and earth come together. Do you have a... Um, a uh, single part in here that you wanted to read that maybe really speaks to that initial goal for the book. Well, I is think it like a summer, you know, like a summarizing type of or introductory type of piece. The first, the first page or two, I think, there does a nice job of, <laughs> of opening up uh, this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Shoot. Um, and this is the the first of seven chapters, Excellent. and the first chapter is called simply "Body and Earth." And uh, just one one other note is that the book is actually written in the form of a dialogue. Right. So you'll notice there'll be um, the book starts with John, and uh, uh, and then he he gives uh, something, and then there's Thomas, and I give some. And so we're actually trying to suggest the the feel 
of our conversation with each other, the interweaving of voices, the interweaving of, of thought and feeling mm -hmm. um, that the book represents. Yeah, the dialogue. I love, yeah, it says body and earth, notes from a conversation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, shoot. Chapter one, body and earth. John, the body is born in the waters of the womb. The womb is the first territory. In the waters of the womb, the seed begins growing into its own being. Then, in the contours of its country, the body comes to have its own aura and energy, its own notions of taste, beauty, and cosmology. The relationship between body and territory grows through a process of concealing and unveiling. Layer by layer, the body discovers its kinship with the body of the earth. Thomas it is often as much a process of rediscovery as of discovery. And each time this kinship is felt, or felt again, we feel an enormous sense of relief. The affinity frees us from our worries and fears. As when we see the face of someone we love after a long time of separation, the tears then come of their own. The body itself weeps and rejoices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the opening of our yeah. dialogue with each other. Right. And, of course, just so everyone back at home who hasn't had a chance or sitting in the car or driving down the road hasn't had a chance to look through this book yet, there's just images that are supplementary, intriguing. Some of them have little comments. Most of them don't, um, which I think is sort of nice because when you have a, a comment on an image, you're really controlling what you want the person to receive from the image. Yes. Um, and we mean the book to be as much a dialogue between the word, the written word, and the image mm -hmm. as between me and John. And between you guys and your readers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing people should know is that, um, so this book was released or launched mm -hmm. or published and put out there into the world in India in July yes. of 2016. So that's pretty recently. Um, it will be coming to the U.S. later as a second release. Yeah. So it's not yet available. Like you can go to Amazon India, for example, if you want to get the book or um, those people have access to it, but it's not yet released in our country. Not yet. However, for all of our lovely listeners who live on Vashon Island, because Thomas is an Islander and has some copies of his own, if you want to flip through these, you can go down to the Vashon bookshop and take a look there. Yes. As always, um, I have my prose, poetry, and purpose display there at the front desk of the Vashon Bookshop. And so during the two weeks that this show is going to be airing on 101.9 FM, um, my copy of this book will be available as a store review copy. Okay, so this is a book, and it's about these things that are going on, but you've had, like, so much that's gone into this book, it, you know, the book is like a distillation, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, so I believe you had all of those experiences, but also was there like a specific inciting incident in your own life or a specific aha moment where it just came to you and John that this was what you guys wanted to create? Or is it really more the results of a long, you know, creative process? It's kind of like, um, the first moment was like a seed. Nah, yeah. The seed uh, was the thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book together about mm -hmm. this topic of common interest, um, the, the, the body? How mm -hmm. does it connect to the earth? Uh, how do we connect to the earth? How do we connect with our own bodies? Right. And the, so, so the two of you are creators, meaning actively engaged in creationary activities. Not everyone is, mm -hmm. but some people are more so. Mm -hmm. And so um, why don't we dive a little bit into the area of philosophy and that conversation we were having earlier about mm -hmm. that, um, because I thought that was just super, super fascinating. What was some of the really interesting things that you discovered in your exploration of philosophy about the different ways to go about seeking wisdom? Great question. And probably the easiest way for me to begin and an answer, to, an answer to that question would be to simply say that a pivotal moment in my own life was discovering philosophy as an undergraduate in college. I had a professor named Norm, Norman Kerr, Professor Kerr. I was always struck by his last name. Is it um, C-A-R-E? It is indeed C-A-R-E. Oh, okay. Um, 
And it goes, sort of goes further than that. He taught, he sort of specialized in teaching ethics, and he was interested in normative ethics. And his name was actually Norman. He was called Norm by his colleagues. So he had <laughs> Norm in his first name and Care in his last name. Right. Um, and he actually did care very deeply about uh, about philosophy in the sense that interests me, which is philosophy as the love of wisdom. Um, even in the word itself, which, which, as you alluded to, comes from Greek, uh, philo uh, is love. Mm-hmm. Filial, we we get that comes from the same root. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia comes from the same right, root. Right, the city of brother um, love. Yeah, and Sophia yeah. is wisdom. So the love of wisdom. Uh, he was Norm. Norm Kerr was someone who really had philosophical conundrums, questions, and he gave me permission to asked the questions that I was secretly asking and not thinking mm-hmm. anybody else cared about. Right, He right. said, well, actually, people have been asking these questions for thousands of years. Um, that was a very liberating moment for me. Um, at the same time, uh, Professor Kerr was coming out of a fairly um, a particular school of Western philosophy, which we could trace from, say, Descartes through Kant uh, through contemporary American philosophers like John Rawls, uh, which would prove to be not as interesting to me uh, because of its, uh, this sort of intellectual tradition, because of its uh, this academic tradition, its interest in a kind of logical neatness, a kind of analytical framework, meaning a framework that tries to break things down to their small pieces and show... Uh, with a kind of almost mathematical or or scientific or scientific-esque rigor mm-hmm. how things work. Uh, and into this picture, uh, I have to add my own experience going after college to, to India mm-hmm. for an extended period of time and learning the Tamil language. That's Tamil spelled T-A-M-I-L mm-hmm. uh, in English. People will often pronounce it Tamil. Uh, in Tamil, it's actually pronounced Tamar. Right. So I usually say Tamil because that's about that's that's right. that seems right to my ear. Right. Um, because it was through studying Tamil that I discovered poetry, or oh. rediscovered poetry, and the music of words, something which I think I'd almost been on the verge of renouncing or, or letting go of uh, when I was sort of in my the height of my philosophical um, ecstasies. So you mean the so real quick before I can lose that thought because I talked with another um, author once is you talked about the music of words just there is um, the name of the language again is Tamil 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 okay that language is it um, is it called what's the language called when it is the changing of the way and the tone and the way in which you say it changes the meaning of a word. It's Is not that a, phonetic? It's not a tonal language. Tonal language. Okay, it's not a tonal it's language. It's not a tonal language. Because that, man, people mm-hmm. do um, major, um, for, oh my gosh, yeah, the story I was hearing was that this other language, which was a tonal language, it's like people would get together and they would um, have these... Um, almost poetry offs, you know, it was mm-hmm. like you were, you were creating on the fly, you know, it was like haikus or whatever, yeah. you know, but it was, it, it worked because the language was tonal. And so there was a lot of innate poetry to it or innate mm-hmm. rhyming to it. Mm-hmm. So this language is not like that. It, it is not, but it is a quantitative language, which means that it's a language which has distinct short and long vowels. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. There's two words. One is Parti, with a short A sound. One is parti, mm-hmm. with a long A sound. And that length of vowel becomes very significant. Parti basically means a dwelling place, like a village or a city. Parti means grandmother. Huh? And so the difference in length, mm-hmm. so this isn't a difference in pitch or in tone, but a different right. in, difference in length will be very significant as far as the meaning of a word is concerned and gives Tamil, I, I think, a lot of its rhythmic um, mm. intensity, its rhythmic mm-hmm. qualities. Or a person who's speaking that language is innately paying attention to the sing-song flow of how they speak in a way. They because, may be. Because song is oftentimes about length and shortness of sound. Yeah. And so, hmm, interesting. And what's interesting is that um, 
sometimes it's the case that with one's own language, we don't pay attention to it because it's what we're so used to. Right, right. So English has long and short vowels, but we don't really think about them mm-hmm. because we just say them as we say them. True. And it has accents, meaning, or accented syllables, heavier syllables. Um, and so the means of, of meaning making in English are also musical means that sometimes escape our ears unless we're listening for them. I've always wished that I could hear English as a non-English speaker. I've always mm. wondered what my own language sounds like because I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't really hear it myself because I'm so in it, mm-hmm. right? You know, you can't, you know, to get outside of it means to have a better view. Yeah. Whereas, so you'll have kids, like my my younger son, he'll, he'll like, um, be pretending to speak Japanese or Chinese or some other language. And I'll say, well, can you pretend to speak English? And he just looks at me. And I'm like, do you even know what your own language sounds like? Mm. That's what you think Chinese sounds like or you think Japanese sounds like. What do you think? And he's like, it just stops him. He's like, I I don't know what my own language sounds like. Mm. But I can imagine a kid in China pretending to talk like an American. I would love to hear what they would think Americans sound like or, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So small divergent there. Okay. So philosophy then as a deductive way of breaking things down mm-hmm. is is what you're saying has sort of become a bit of the normative in our culture. I think at least as far as the universities or academic philosophy is concerned. Right, which reminds me a little bit of when we think about medicine. You know, there's been a, um, a real push towards, okay, there's that organ which does this thing and it releases oh, yes. that chemical and we're going to give you this pill which will do mm-hmm. this and poof, you're going to be better. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eastern philosophy and m- maybe... But definitely older school Eastern style medicine approach was like, oh, what's wrong with the whole body and how do we make mm-hmm. everything feel better rather than a deductive thing? Yeah. So what's the other way of doing philosophy? Well, what I've become interested in is not so much an other way, but a how does one explore the questions, mm-hmm. philo- what we, we could call philosophical questions. Right. Um uh, with all of our experience, not just with logic and the intellect, mm-hmm. but with the sound and music of words, mm-hmm. with the way that poetry enables us to say things that aren't quite able to be said, mm-hmm. um, to feel things for which we may not have words. Um, so my exploring, uh, my my real introduction as an adult to to poetry through mm-hmm. the Tamil language. Uh, awakened my ears to the musical sense and the musical meaning that can be found in poetic expression, which may nonetheless, or at the same time, point to something we could call a philosophical or even just a life truth. Well, I do think there has poetry oftentimes, the most valuable and important piece of poetry is not in its prettiness or its creativity, but it's in its ability to do exactly that, to reveal a shared truth that the yeah. reader will completely appreciate in a way that gets you. Mm-hmm. It like lands in your heart or your stomach oh, yeah. and you go, oh, oh, yeah. compared yeah. to I'm reading a nonfiction philosopher's, you know, which is very in your brain. Yeah. So is it almost like, you know, how people will say, oh, you're being in your head now and maybe want to be in your heart a little bit. It's like getting grounded in our in our body's experience. I definitely think that's part of it. I'm interested in how those moments of insight, uh, which can sometimes be expressed in words and sometimes can't, have a context um, in the body, in earthly experience, as much as in any intellectual framework we may bring to it. Right. So it's about feeling. It's about feeling as, as, as much as thought. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in doing translations for this language in India. So how, did, how did that whole piece of your life get going? <laughs> um, well, and I how many languages do you speak? I speak three with, with confidence, mm-hmm. English, Tamil, and Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, I did for a period study ancient Greek, but I never aspired to speak it. Does anyone speak ancient Greek no. anymore? Okay, okay. <laughs> and it's like contem- Latin, right? Contemporary Greek is quite a bit different from ancient Greek, I understand. Okay. Um, uh, but I didn't. But I, I got to a certain point, and then I think I got what I needed from that study, and that sort of has uh, been set aside. Um, I never intended 
to translate. In fact, uh, the man who taught me or helped me to learn Tamil, Dr. K. V. Ramakodi, mm-hmm. uh, was very insistent at the beginning that I not translate between Tamil and English in my head, but rather try to right. think and feel as much as possible in Tamil. Yeah. Listen yeah. to the language, even if I had no idea what was being said. Um, try to formulate my thoughts and sentences with whatever words I happen to know, rather than think a sentence in English and then try to say, how do I, how do I say that in Tamil? To be more of a receiver as a child is a receiver. Oh, yes. I mean, I think yeah. learning a, a, another language uh, is to go through an entire new birth. Yeah. Because you become a baby again, you know, unable to, to express yourself in words, unable in a certain sense to be who you know that you are because you can't say your story. You can't, you can't say very much about what's on, going on inside of you. Well, and, your, and the neurons in your brain are literally having to reconnect. Yeah, you're creating new connections. You're creating yeah. a whole new pattern. And if the lang- and if the language is very different from the one that you may have grown up in, you're creating very different kinds of patterns. Right. Right. Um, and so you're constructing thoughts. You're articulating feelings in perhaps ways you've never thought or felt before. I could. Well, um, it, it, you know, language is a piece of culture, right? So yeah, when you learn a new language, you are embracing and taking on an entirely different worldview oh, yeah. in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of my interest in going to India in the first place was to attempt at least to step outside of my own world, its mm-hmm. language, its culture, its history, its traditions, and see what it looks like from the outside. Mm, yes. See what I look like yes. from a very different perspective. Yeah, um, yes. And then to, to seek a kind of uh, not only wisdom from that, but then what does it mean to have both of those perspectives, to stand between those perspectives? So you went, what brought about learning of Tamil? So, uh, like accidental or intentional? Or? Well, both. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, when I wanted to learn another language coming out of college, because I hadn't really spent much time learning language uh, in, in college, because I was studying other things, uh, and I wanted to live in a place where I could live in a village in a very rooted, um, smaller uh, community. You said you lived near and in and about a city. A city named Madurai, which is a very old city in Tamil Nadu. Basically, it's, it's cultural, one of its main cultural capitals. I mean, for thousands of years, it's been a center of Tamil language and learning. Wow. And there's um, how many languages again in India? Something like 16 or 18 Well, there, there are 16 official? or 18 official languages and innumerable um, virtually innumerable right. languages, dialects, uh, all across the country. Is Tamil We're, one of those main One officials? of the main languages, yeah. Okay. Well, about how many, about how large of a physical space does this language culture expand over? I mean, it's not just the language of one town. It's no, it's the language of, of the state of Tamil Nadu, okay. uh, in, which is basically the bottom, I guess we could call it the bottom right-hand corner of the country, if we're mm-hmm. looking at a map that's oriented right, north, right. with north at the top. Um, uh, the, as far as figures, I can tell you about, I think around 80 million people mm. speak Tamil around the world in, in South India, mm-hmm. as well as in Sri Lanka and in Malaysia and Singapore, mm-hmm. um, and of course now in, in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, this this city has been named as it is or existed sort of as it is for thousands of years. For several thousand years, yeah. Wow. Um, Just as a kind of reference, uh, more people speak Tamil than speak Italian, just to to give give a more concrete... And more than Danish. There's only 5.6 million Danish speakers, I think, Mm -hmm. in the world. And yeah, yeah, we just forget. Really forget, I think, the massive amount of people who are living on the other side of the planet. Mm-hmm. There are just a lot of people over there. Yeah. Um, so my teacher's advice, I think, was yes. very sound advice at the mm-hmm. beginning um, so that I could really enter into the language fully. Um, and that was my intent. I mean, the first couple of years that I was studying and learning Tamil was that. Um, even even six years into it, when I was able to read um ancient Tamil literature, poetry, mm-hmm. poetry from 2,000 years ago, mm-hmm. um, poetry from 1,700 years ago. Um, I was really reading it to enter into it. Um, and the thought of translating it hadn't really, wasn't on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but after I returned from from that trip, the same trip that I met that that C.F. John and I started working on this book, right, two thousand and four, right. Um, I wanted to be able to talk about some of these poems that I had studied, and I could only do it if I translated them. Mm-hmm. Um, and because at this time I was also I had apprenticed myself to poetry in English, um, to to coming to know the poetry of my own language, the language that I grew up in, that I still think um, some of my most inarticulate thoughts in. Right, right. Um, aside from whatever things I may be able to express in a more articulate manner. Uh, I took on translating as a kind of, on the one hand, a way to talk about my experience of these poems, but also as a very important part of my apprenticeship itself. Because I think translating poetry in particular um, forces one to really confront one's own language. What is it really capable of doing? Mm. What is it really capable of saying? And how can we how can we bring not just the so-called meaning of the words, but their interplay, their rhythmic, sonic, um, sensual interplay? How do we suggest something of that in the language that we're translating into? So well, because you can't do a direct translation usually. No, you can't. Can you? Um, is that I, scary or intimidating? I think it's marvelous um, because it means the jump between, I'm thinking particularly of the case of poetry, to jump to try to bring something of a poem from one language to another language Mm -hmm. I think can only be done with poetry Um, Mm -hmm. because you're trying to suggest not so much a grouping of words but an entire pattern of sound and meaning. And you can only do that, in my opinion, by trying to suggest not the same exact thing but to, cre- to create an analogous pattern of right. sound and meaning in the other language. Well, and in a way, it's interesting because poetry is both trying to delve into a very, very specific point, and it's almost like it uses a broad stroke to achieve that specific point. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's like, there's almost feels like there's flexibility in poetry because it's not you know, hinging so much on maybe an exact word here or there, but on a concept. So I guess if you were translating from one language into another, would you look first at the, the poem and and read it in the original language and feel it and try to pick up on what the the outgoing message, the overlying message, the, the end, you know, result is, and then try to bring that over? Or are you – because – I don't imagine if you had some of those little rhyming poems or something that, that you can then pop over to another language and suddenly come up with the words necessary to be rhyming in that language too. So does it, do you feel that it's a more flexible medium when it comes to translation? Um, I, I think mean, it depends. I, can't even I, think, I think it depends on, on the poem. Mm. What I tend to do is to try to go as deeply as possible into the original poem in mm-hmm. its original language and see if I can, how much of it I can really experience mm-hmm. the the various shades of meaning that may be involved, the various rhythmic patterns that play upon my ear and in my mouth and my on my tongue, the various um, uh, play of consonants and and vowels rhyming or chiming or or being in in a kind of uh, dissonance with each other, mm-hmm. all of these things. Uh, and then, and only then, attempting to do something similar, it can't be the same, but something similar in English. So the question of rhyme is a very interesting one. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, when in English, people commonly consider rhyme to be the sort of chiming sound at the end of a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, roses are red, violets are blue, blah, 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 ooh. Right, right, right. Um, right. Which is actually not even... Um, is neither the only way that rhyming sounds work in English, nor right. is it even the oldest one. Mm-hmm. Um, older pattern of rhyme, patterns of, of rhyming in the sense, the larger sense of like sounds uh, spaced rhythmically, um, involved consonants in Anglo-Saxon poetry, mm. um, chiming consonant sounds. And in fact, in old uh, Tamil poetry uh, and, and through to the present, uh, What's far more important is not a chiming sound at the end of a sentence, but consonants that will um, 
reflect each other at certain points at the beginning of a line rather than at the end of a line of poetry. That is fascinating. Um, so then how do you suggest we don't have the exact same thing in English, but how yeah. can we, what is the effect of that on a reader mm-hmm. and listener mm-hmm. in Tamil? And how can we create an, a similar effect, perhaps with similar means, perhaps with different means mm-hmm. in English? These are things that came to, to really fascinate me. Yeah, um, I think you'd have to be fascinated because that is so complex. That cannot be like a I'm bored and I'm going to do this type of concept. No. I mean, this is this is real passion-based work. I think it's very much, I mean, for me, it has to be. I can't do it if it's not. I have to really fall in love with a poet or a writer or their a particular piece of work to want to translate it. I yeah. have tried to translate things that I thought ought to be translated, but I didn't have that same passion, and it, it, it just falls flat. It doesn't happen. Well, now, and people in America oftentimes have heard the name of Rumi, mm-hmm. and they love his work, but, of course, it was not written in English, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so it, I wonder a person, what language was Rumi speaking in? I'm talking Persian in that case, okay. I believe. Or or some sub-dialect, probably. Mm-hmm. So if a person who spoke that original language was listening to his poem, and then they listened to the translations that we hear, I wonder what that person would think. Well, I mean, we have the testimony of people who have, and most of the time, it, it, what they, they you can't get it all across. Mm-hmm. Because the more, I believe, the more authentic a poem is in its own language, the more deeply it taps into everything that that language is. And that that culture is. And that maybe. that culture is, and everything yeah. that comes with language and culture. That comes up a lot of times in studies around the Bible or something, is that you'll have someone who says, well, look. It says blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yes, that is the translation from 500 years ago, which is the translation from 300 years before that. And it's been through like nine languages. And then there will be someone who will say, and this word in the original culture and in the original language when Jesus was alive meant that, Mm -hmm. which is a completely different translation than what we would have thought it meant. And yeah, so translation is a super fascinating area of interest and you know as you are i mean the the bible is a great example of a a work in a number of other languages yeah uh, which has had a huge influence not just on our culture but on the english language itself Mm -hmm. um in all sorts of different ways the king james bible is a sort of pivotal event in the history of the english language was that one also linked with when um, they began to give sermons in the native language of the people. Um, that's certainly connected time? to it. Yeah, they, they were. Yeah, it was there, around the same there, time. There's, 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 there are very important connections. There. Right. Okay. So real quick, I just saw the clock. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I have to um, take a moment, a little station identification. Um, if you're just joining us. I am March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I am interviewing fellow Islander Thomas Pruxma today on Voice of Ashton, KVSH. I would like to give a shout-out to Minglement because support for this program is provided by Minglement. Since 1972, Vashon Island's original natural marketplace, where owners, staff, and customers alike embrace the importance of natural, organic, and non-GMO food and products. Carrying a full selection of organic groceries, produce, prepared foods, supplements, tinctures, gifts, bulk teas, spices and herbs, and conveniently located at Center, where the town of Vashon originated. Okie doke, so thanks a lot to Minglement. We are a community-supported radio station, and it's fabulous to be able to come in here and produce this show. So back to our interview. So... Well, let me look at our list of things we wanted to cover because we are running out of time. I will not give the shout out so much about 144. Well, all right, let's mention real quick what it is. This show is airing after the event, but it sounds to me like they're going to plan to maybe do this again. It might become an annual thing, 1448. Sure. But it sounds fascinating. Anyways, and I'm assuming the results of 1448 will be maybe shown at the Vashon Theater in the future, you think? We'll see. I'm not sure if they'll be recording it. I hope they will. Okay, so Um, real quick, this coming weekend, um, one of the other areas of writing that Thomas is engaged in happens to be the first 1448 Theater Festival here on Vashon. Tell us what it is about. So over a period of 48 hours, seven writers, seven directors, a whole slew of actors, set designers, 
um, musicians and other other tech people will be throwing together, will be writing, rehearsing, and performing 14 10-minute plays. 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 So that means this this is a community engagement activity as in we show up and watch it all happen or so and this means so that on friday night and saturday night um people can come i think it's at seven and nine thirty uh and they sit and they have they get to watch the first seven plays i'll just put it this way thursday night the playwrights all get a topic right and a number of actors male and female right we write through the night the right, next morning right, we have right. a 10 minute script which is rehearsed all through that day and then is performed that evening. Oh, wow. People come to that performance. Right. Then we do the whole thing again. So you don't get any sleep? Uh, probably not. Are they gonna, can't they give you like all 14 of the topics on Thursday nights? So you can be thinking ahead. Well, we all, we all write on one common topic. There'll be a topic pulled from a hat. Oh. That'll be a common topic as far as I understand. Yeah. Common topic to us all. But then everyone will take, each of the seven writers will take their own way with it, have their own way with right. it. Right. Okay, so... so that sounds like so much fun. Yeah. So by the time that people are listening to this interview, I will hopefully have survived. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And and then, of course, as we know, um, spent a number of days recovering. Y- yes. I missed a night's sleep a while ago. And, you know, back when you're in your 20s, oh, you're a little fuzzy-headed for a few hours. The next day, you're fine. In your 30s, oh, you're a little tired for maybe a day and a half. Oh, my gosh. I missed a night's sleep. Like, I'm sitting there looking out the window at 630. The the chickens are making all sorts of a ruckus, and I haven't had a wink of sleep. I've been cleaning my house all night long. And it took a week. Oh, yeah. No joke. I was a (laughs) zombie for a week, and I thought I could never do that again. (laughs) Okay, well, you're brave to be doing this. It's exciting. Now, you're the writer. That means that the actors get to go home and sleep? The Well, yeah. So we take turns. The writers write through the night. We get to sleep during the day while the... Uh, oh, actors and directors are, oh. are and scene people and, and musicians are putting the shows together. Okay, okay, okay. That's more fair. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, and of course, the Saturday night shows would have been horrible because you guys would have been, you know, sleeping. Yeah. For, oh, that's hilarious. No. Okay. We should be able to get a little sleep in there somewhere. All right. Hopefully, this will become a regular thing. I mean, this. Maybe this like, is the first time on Vashon, but we'll see if it's oh, the first of many. Oh, it sounds like what Vashon would love. All right. Okay. So then, let's see here. Um, magic. Everyone knows you already on this island, I think, pretty much as the guy who comes to the library, does magic shows for the kids. You taught a class that my husband took. Oh, yeah. He really enjoyed it. So um, how did you get into magic? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, when I was in preschool, there was a magician that came to the, the preschool and performed something with some silk scarves. Um, one disappeared inside of another. And so I immediately went home and, and uh, tried to do it myself, raiding my mother's sewing drawer and uh i don't think i did a very good job but i got hooked then uh-huh. and through um much of my childhood magic was sort of the one thing that i did wow. uh i i thought i was gonna become i thought that was my destiny i was a kid magician i got paid to do shows all over the place wow um, and then it sort of fell by the wayside through mm. through high school and through college and then when i moved back to the northwest mm-hmm. which coincides uh, with when i moved to vashon um people remembered that 10-year-old boy who performed magic. Awesome. And I started doing a couple shows here and there. And when Islander Myrna Hecht invited me to a classroom in Seattle where she was teaching poetry as a teaching artist, I thought, well, what if I put poetry and magic together? And that's how what I call the poet's magic was born. So since for the last seven years or so, that's what I've been doing, combining poetry and magic together and something which is um, hopefully uh, more than either of those would be on its own. Okay, so I have not been to one of your shows. I don't really recreate very often. I tend to be sort of a major uh-huh. workaholic. And um, so I have heard about them, always thought, oh, that'd be so nice to go, but I'm going to go home and wash dishes or whatever. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you blend these two together. Um, it depends. I mean, sometimes it will be, there'll be a poem that's woven into a magical effect. Sometimes mm-hmm. the effect will itself be a poem, or, or the, the, the experience will be a poem with some magic woven into it. Right. It really depends on the occasion. Um, there's a way you can see me do some of what I do once a week on the island, because I perform... You do this once a week? At uh, May Kitchen and Bar. Oh! Um, 
on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Sunday night through the whole evening I'm there and people who are interested can request me to come to their table for a, a gift of magic. Okay, are you working of, October 5th? Uh, I'd have to check my calendar. All right, okay, because that's my birthday, so May... Is that a Wednesday? Yes. I believe I am. I haven't been to May's Kitchen yet either. I've heard so many rave reviews, but once again, I don't really go out very much, so maybe I need to go out Well, to I May's. do a special thing for birthdays, too, Uh-oh. just so you're aware. Should I be scared? No, you should be uh, eager with anticipation. <laughs> All right, okay. There no embarrassment is involved. Oh, I wouldn't. Oh, you can't really embarrass me. <laughs> I, I can't even embarrass myself, and you'd think I could. All right, okay. So, brilliant, you perform there. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. No, well, do you mind me asking, is it a paid gig? Oh, yeah. I would assume oh, yeah. so. All right, okay, okay, got it. And what about the translations? Are you doing that just for fun, or is that something you've been asked to do by someone in India who wants you to come in? No, and help I do them? the translations out of love. Um, okay. I have a, I have a one book of translations which came out um, 2009 called "Give, Eat, and Live: Poems oh. of, of Poems of Avayar." It's also available, or you can take a peek yeah. at it in the, the Vashon Bookshop. Do you have a website? I do have a website, which is um, poetsmagic.com. Okay. Poets, plural, mm-hmm. magic.com. Okay. And, I mean, that's that's largely for my work as a performer, mm-hmm. um, but you can also find information about my writing there. Brilliant. Uh, and I'm currently working on a number of translations that are um, that I, I just think need to be done and okay. hopefully will be out um, perhaps in the next year or two. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. Let's see here. Um well, then my final question is about living in India and mm-hmm. or traveling there. I have so many people I know who have gone to India, and I've heard a wide range of stories. No one has ever had a problem with the experiences in India, but a large number, proportion of those people have had to either come home early or like one of them was going to live in India for a while and she had to come back and leave her husband and son there because they were okay because they end up getting gastrointestinal issues. And so I've always had this little bit of a hesitancy because most of the images you see of India are massive numbers of human beings somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I'm curious, what is it like to be in India? How do you go there and ensure that you're going to not get sick well just at the practical level one just takes care with what one drinks and eats um for years on end you've been there for years and so you're like always conscious i think i I, you you know where where whether the water will be clean where you're going i mean i lived in a village outside of madurai um and it had very good water so i didn't i never had any trouble with the water there i did have trouble one day with some bad fish that i ate and Mm -hmm. um well, food puss. I've had food. I mean, that happens here. any place. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's just being aware and mindful of of the sources of of what you're eating or drinking. And otherwise, it just felt entirely safe. Where I was, oh yes, oh yes. Um, it was quite an adjustment to the body, my body, because it was a much hotter climate than mm-hmm. I was used to. I mean, up to 102, 103 degrees in the heat of summer, mm-hmm. and summer's quite long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was there was adjustment, um, but it really depends on the context in which you you find yourself or in which you you place yourself. I, yeah, I went to Mexico. I've been to Mexico a couple of times, and um, one time I was there and I ended up getting quite sick. Mm. You know, even though I was trying to be careful with what I was oh, yeah. eating and drinking, and so and I don't. It just yes, I think also probably there is two Indias. Just like there's two Americas in a way. I imagine there, although those are very different concepts, but um, I think there is the India that the people of America are traditionally seeing images of. You know, certain um, images or cities that we more often than not see pictures of in the media or are picked up in movies. And there's probably vast amounts of India where the imagery of that part of the country just never really comes through. Oh, sure. So what are what are some of the areas of India that you've seen that maybe you would have said, I never would have thought India would look like this, or this is completely different than what, you know, I would have expected? Well, I mean, the place, the part of India that I know best is a place that I knew nothing about before going there, um, nothing about the language, uh, the Tamil language, 
um, nothing about that that the the cuisine of that. I mean, even so, for instance, a, a, an Indian restaurant in the United States is typically a North Indian mm-hmm. restaurant, and the South has its own, uh, not its own, but many uh, traditions of uh, delicious kinds of food mm-hmm. um, that will vary region to region. I think I think the most interesting, one of the most inter- interesting things about India is just its sheer diversity. Right, diversity of languages, diversity of landscapes. Uh, diversity of of foods and customs and cultures. Uh, there is not, neither one nor two, nor a thousand different Indias. Right. Um, but there are innumerable, interesting, fascinating places in that place that we, for convenience, refer to as India. Right. I know. I know. It's like just because there's these borders around this massive space, and we call it India as if it's all one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the history that I, mm, history. I love history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wow. Is there, as we leave, um, is there one parting piece out of body and earth that you might want to leave us with? Well, since we began with the beginning of the book, ah, here we go. I don't think there's anything wrong with a book of this kind ending. Here we go uh, with the, with the some of the ending words, um, which of course I should add are not the ending end of the book because the book ends with an image rather than words. And um, it's a dialogue and dialogues don't ever end either, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, the book is really an invitation into a conversation that people might continue in their own ways, with mm-hmm. their own, uh, with the books that they read as well as with the people around them, the people that, that are interested in these things. Right. Um, so this is the last page of text in the book. And this is uh, Thomas speaking. Yeah. The forms of abundance connect us to infinity. A well that is exploited, too much water taken too fast, will soon dry up and die, just as the body dies without water, just as the body dies without the mind. But a well that is revered and honored as a well, swelling from good springs in a land that is cared for, can give an extraordinary abundance. If its limits are respected, it could give water without end just as land that is honored could give without end, just as love that is honored gives forever. This is the paradox of humility. Only within limits can we hope for abundance, for what Wendell Berry calls a limitless promise. It's like the poet whose poems say more than she thinks she knows, or the community that does more together than any of its members could have imagined doing on their own. This is the abundance that comes from kinship, from the affinity that joins the borders of bodies, from the yearning to connect and unite. It is indeed a promise without end, and it leads to celebration, to praise and thanksgiving, for the abundance of life, for the abundance of the earth, for the power of the body to heal and make whole. And then, as you had mentioned earlier, there are some footprints as yes. part of this beautiful um, image created by by John. Yes. You call him John or C.F. John? When I talk to him, I call him John. John. If right, I refer right, to him right. in the third person, C.F. John seems fitting. Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Are the, look, that's an interesting image. That's a composite image of oh, okay. having to do with uh, affluence as opposed to abundance. And the waste right. that affluence tends to produce. Oh, now, now that's an interest. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So, unfortunately, or, well, okay. Fortunately, on that note, we are now concluding a brilliant and fun hour with Thomas Proxma. And unfortunately, for the next 10 minutes or so of our lives, this will all come to an end. <laughs> and then another wonderful show is going to show up on your radio station, folks. Um, let's see. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Thomas Proxma here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And your website again, Thomas? Poetsmagic.com. Excellent. And I will. I would love to have you connect with me when you are ready to release this book here in the U.S. and oh, we can yes. talk again. I'd be delighted. Okay, awesome. And now I will leave all of you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana.
Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do gnaw At liberty the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged we won't with We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your fevery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words do leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets We occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You can't divide us into sides From our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you, till you do, the bidding of the many, not the few, we are the many.
you are the few